You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Amen. Well, today I want to talk about the theme, Grace, uh, Grace for the Fearful. And we're going to begin to look at the story of Gideon today. Sometimes we can forget what is most obvious. Sometimes we can forget what is most obvious. I read a story from author, uh, from writer uh, Jonah Goldberg, and he told the following story that illustrates this so well. He, he tells about the time he was newly married, and uh, they had gotten a house, he and his wife, and they had this kitchen island, and, and they wanted to get some bar stools uh, for their kitchen island. So they went to this place in their town uh, where there was a lot of furniture stores, and they were all kind of, you know, in one area. And they began to look around, and they just could not find anything that worked. So finally, they walk into the last store uh, that they know of, and they go in there, and uh, the salesman comes out to help them, and they say, look, we're just looking for some bar stools, tired by this point. We don't want anything with leopard print, okay? We don't want anything that's chrome, okay? This is for our, our kind of our kitchen, uh, this is in our kitchen for our island. So uh, the guy says, well, you know, this is all we have, and, and uh Goldberg talks about the fact that when he looked over the guy, they were all leopardy and chromy, and some of them were actually leopardy and chromy. And uh, he said, no, that, that's not what we want. And so then he writes the following of the, uh, in, of the interaction. He says, okay, thanks anyway. Uh, and by the way, do you know of any other places that might sell bar stools? He says, the salesman thought hard for a surprisingly long time. He suggested one or two places that we had already been to, so we said, no, we've been there, thanks anyway, and we started to walk out. Right before the, we reached the door, the salesman said, hold on, hey, hey, I'm not sure that this is the kind of place you're looking for, or even if they have what you want, but I know one place you could try. Really, where, we asked. It's called Barstools Plus. <laughs> to this day, he said, we laugh because the guy had to dig so deep to think Barstools Plus, the area's largest barstool emporium dedicated to all your bar stool needs, as if it was a total Hail Mary idea. <laughs> Some real outside the box, just crazy enough to work brainstorming was required to come up with Bar Stools Plus as a possible solution to our quest for, checks notes, bar stools. Sometimes the most obvious things we forget, and that is true with the Bible. We so easily forget this reality. The Bible is about God. The Bible is about God. I challenge you that we frequently don't read it that way. 
The Bible is about God. But we forget that. And when we come to various people in the Bible, uh, especially people that do great things, we, we begin to prop them up as a hero. We want a hero. And we begin to prop them up as a hero, and we sort of make it about them. And then we make it about the moral lessons that we can learn from them to apply to us. So then we're making it about us. Uh, sort of a book of fables, a book of allegories, where we read a story and we say, what are the moral lessons for me? Now, that doesn't mean that the stories of the Bible don't have moral lessons for us, for surely they do. It just means that no character in the Bible is the ultimate hero. It's God is the hero. Christ is the hero of the Bible. But when we forget that, we take characters like Gideon, and we make him our hero, and we forget about the flaws in his life that, that are present because, first of all, the authors of Scripture are honest, but secondly, to point us to the one who is the true and greater, Gideon, to point us to the one who is the ultimate Savior and Rescuer. And so with that in mind, we dig into the one of the two of the be, one of the two best known judges in the book of Judges, Gideon, Samson being, of course, the other one. And so in the Gideon narrative, he does some great stuff, but he's got some issues as well. We will look at him and we're gonna start and we're gonna read chapter six in sections. So we're gonna start with verses one through ten. Uh, let's listen to this, God's holy word. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you've not obeyed my voice." Well, the first section is about Israel being oppressed. And if you've been with us, uh, we're back at the cycle. I'd like to look at the cycle again because the same cycle happens every time. And we are there with a few differences this time, but we are there. So the cycle works like this. This is how the book of Israel works over, uh, I mean, the book of Judges works over and over again. Uh, Israel serves the Lord. Uh, and we read in the last verse of the previous chapter, the land had rest for 40 years. So before we get to the Gideon story, for 40 years... Israel had peace uh, with their enemies. They weren't 
chasing idols. Uh, they serve the Lord. And then Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Well, that was the first verse, wasn't it, of chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then Israel is oppressed. Well, that's what happens. Midian comes in and they are oppressed. We read that. And then verse 7, it says the people cried out to the Lord. So Israel's oppressed. And then Israel cries out to the Lord and God raises up a judge. But in this cycle, something happens between Israel cries out to the Lord and God raises up a judge. And we'll look at that here in just a second. So we're back on the cycle. And it's not just a circular sort of cycle. It, it's, a, it's a spiral. It's a circle that goes downward. So every time you run this lap, you go a little deeper and a little deeper, and things progress and get a little bit worse. And by the time we get to the end of Judges, this is no exaggeration. The most heinous, horrendous acts in the entire Bible are recorded. So it gets lower and lower and lower. And this is the worst oppression they've had because Midian doesn't come in like other Canaanite lands and sort of just rule over them. No, no, Midian does something worse. They come in at harvest time every year and they bring Israel very low, verse 6 says. How is it that they bring them low? Well, they bring so many people people and so many animals that you can't even count them, the scripture says. And at harvest time, they go pillage all the food. They go pillage all the food and take the animals from Israel. So verse 4 says, they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. So they would take their, uh, they would take their food and then they would take their farm animals as well. Well, it's so bad in Israel that they are actually running for the hills. Verse 2 says, the hand of Midian overpowered them. The people made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. They're actually living in caves. They're living like cavemen and women or like animals up in the hills while all of their food is pillaged by these sort of locust men they're compared to, these locusts that ravage all that they have. And it's the worst oppression that they've had so far for seven years. Well, Israel cries out to the Lord, no surprise, verse 7. But here's what happens differently. We, we don't go immediately and God raises up Gideon. When they cry out to the Lord, he sends a prophet. And that's never happened before. He sends someone to come preach to them. They need food. They need safety. They need their donkeys back. And he sends, a, he sends a prophet to speak to them. Dale Davis in his commentary says, this is not what you expect and not what they would have thought was very helpful. He said, it's about like being broken down on the road and you call AAA and rather than sending a tow truck, AAA sends a philosopher. Uh, you're broken down and some dude in a tweed sports coat and a turtleneck and a goatee shows up and you say, my car won't start. And he says, what really is a car? You know, like that's not helpful at that moment. They don't need a preacher. We need a military guy to go defeat Midian so that we can have some food next harvest. But they really did need a preacher because what they needed was they needed someone to remind them of who God is and to remind them of where they have been. They need to know why are they being oppressed. We keep going down this circle because nobody really repents for the long term and embraces God. It's, it's, it's temporary. Sometimes it could be years, but it is temporary. More than relief, they need to know who their God is 
and why they are being oppressed. And so he tells them, I brought you out of Egypt, verse 8. I delivered you from the Egyptians. I delivered you from everyone who's oppressed you. I gave you this land. I am the Lord. You shouldn't be worshiping other gods, but you're not listening. So they have forgotten that the God they serve is the God overall. He's powerful. He's gracious. He has freed them from every oppressor. They forget that, and they start worshiping other gods. So they don't know God very well. They also don't know themselves. They're not aware of, hey, we're under oppression. Nobody's saying, let's repent. They're saying, God, help us. Give us freedom from this oppression. But they really need to repent. And they really need to see God for who he is so that they would come running to their gracious God. So that's Israel's oppression. The next thing is Gideon is chosen. So God does raise up a judge. Verse 11, we'll read 11 through 24. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, uh, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wondrous, wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that this is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes and ephah flour from an ephah flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought Uh, them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. So, uh, after the message of the prophet, who says, God did all this for you, delivered you from Egypt, freed you from all your oppressors, you'd expect that they'd either repent or uh, 
you know, that they would respond in some way to him. Or if they didn't repent, maybe he would bring judgment. That's not what happens. There's no sign that they repent, and yet God raises up a deliverer anyway. It's the grace of God, the mercy of God, that he is once again a delivering people that he should be judging further, but he delivers them uh, and brings salvation to them. And we first meet this guy, Gideon, who's going to be the next judge that he's raising up, uh, and he's beating out wheat at a wine press. Now, obviously, you should be doing wine things at a wine press and wheat things at a threshing floor, but he doesn't want to be seen, and so he's doing it uh, so that no one from Midian would see him, presumably, so he's uh, doing it in this hidden place. And the angel of the Lord Lord shows up. Now, sometimes it says the angel of the Lord, and then sometimes it says, like verse 14, the Lord spoke to him. So it's ambiguous. Is it the angel of the Lord? Is it the Lord? Well, he's not surprised when he sees this character, this individual, this person that addresses him. He doesn't come shining like an angel or something like that. So presumably, he looks like a normal person that's speaking to him uh, because he feels very free to pop off to this individual. So he he looks like a normal person, but it's God. So it's some kind of uh, God taking the form of a person to speak to him. And he shows up, and the first thing he says to him, the first words out of his mouth are, Oh, mighty man of valor, which is how my wife greets me every day when I come home from work. <laughs> so embarrassing. But uh, so, mighty man of valor, I am with you. He calls him something, he's, he's calling him, You are a warrior. I mean, he's not really, but he's, it's like calling Peter the rock when he's been uh, very impetuous. Uh, so it, it's like calling him the rock. He said, you are a mighty man of God. And, and, and the guy says, you know what, uh, I, I'm with you. And Gideon says to him, you know what, uh, if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening? He, he doesn't respond with humility. He doesn't respond with faith. He responds with complaint. If God's real and God's with his people, he's basically, I've heard the stories. Our father said that God brought us all out of Egypt. Well, where is he now? That's what he says. I mean, the Midianites are taking all our food for seven years, so we could use a few of those anti-Egypt plagues up in here right about now. It'd be great for him to bring some of those plagues so that we get some freedom. Where is God? Uh, has the Lord forsaken us and given us, it now, no, no, he said, not a question. Now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. God's not with us, he's forsaken us, and that's why Midian's here. Now what we know from reading the cycle every week and seeing this happen, we know that they're in the hands of Midian not because God's forsaken them, it's proof that God has not forsaken them. He's allowing them to experience this oppression, this difficulty, so that they will turn and follow him, so that they will encounter his blessing, so they will meet him, so they will fulfill their calling in the land and live out the purpose he has for his people among the nations. The fact that Midian is there doesn't mean God's gone. It means God's doing something. It means God hasn't given up on them. But we do the same thing, don't we? When difficulties come, we assume God's not present. God's not with us. God's forgotten about us. God's left us. But the biblical point of view on this, the Christian point of view, is that when difficulty comes, oh, God is absolutely with us. 
Because he's using every difficulty in our lives ultimately for our good, Romans 8 says. He's taking all difficulties, all sufferings, and he's working them together for our good. It doesn't matter, it doesn't mean that every difficulty we have is tied specifically to a single act of idolatry like's happening in this passage right here. It's not always a direct correlation between I committed this sin and now I'm suffering this difficulty. Plenty of people commit this sin and apparently are uh, prospering externally. So we don't make that necessarily that one-to-one call. But we do say whatever God, whatever difficulty we are experiencing, God is fulfilling his purpose through that. That is the good news. So he, he begins to make excuses. I can't do this. I'm the least of Manasseh. Uh, I'm the, our clan's the least in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's household. Well, these are weak excuses, and they're not truthful. Because we're about to find out his dad's somewhat powerful. His dad has a shrine uh, to Baal. He's probably acting as a, something of a, uh, a lay priest of Baal. Uh, he's a, evidently a powerful guy in the area. They have a house. He's got a, a couple of bulls. And we're going to find out in a few verses, Gideon personally has at least 10 servants because he calls 10 of his servants. So he's not some guy who has no resources whatsoever. He's a guy that has some things, but that's not the point. The ultimate point is his excuses, his excuses are lame, not just because they're, uh, they seem to be untruthful, but because they lack the reality that, that, that God will be with him. The promise is, I will be with you. Verse 14, I send you. Verse 16, I will be with you. The promise that God will use him, the calling of Gideon is not based on his resources. It's not based on his status. doesn't matter if you're least. That's all irrelevant. What matters is that the presence of God goes with him. What matters is that God Almighty is calling him and will empower him for what he's called him to do. And that is always the case with us as well. Anything God requires of us in Scripture, anything God calls us to do as a follower of Jesus, he will always give us, by his grace, the power to do it through his Holy Spirit, through his word, through the support of his people. He will always enable us. Well, Gideon hears that, but he wants more. He needs some assurance. Uh, So he asks for a sign. He says, you know, uh, don't depart, verse 18. Uh, I'm going to bring you a present and set it before you. So he's wanting to see what will happen. Well, he goes and prepares this meal. Uh, The angel tells him to put the meal on the rock. The angel takes his staff. He touches the rock, and it all is consumed in a blaze. And the angel of the Lord disappears. Well, Gideon sees that, and he's blown away. Evidently, it's so fearful, he thinks he's going to die. And the reason I say that is because verse 24, the Lord said to him, peace, do not fear, you shall not die. You don't tell someone, hey, don't worry, you're not going to die unless they think they're going to die. So he, it's so incredible, this experience. It's so real that he encounters God, and he says, today I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face, and he builds an altar there, and now he's empowered because he's about to go do something very courageous, and that leads us uh, to the next uh, section where he's moved from these fearful excuses that we just read about to faith. Look what's next, verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, so the night of this uh, 
offering that, that was burned up. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizrites were called out to follow him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him and he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali and they went up to meet him. So this section is about Gideon taking a stand. We've seen the oppression of Israel, we've seen the calling of Gideon and now he takes a stand. Normally in Judges, uh, we go from, if we can see the cycle again, normally what happens in the cycle is that we go from God raises up a judge to Israel is delivered. So normally there's calling and then there's a battle. But, but something happens here. Whenever something's different than the cycle or is inserted like that prophet section and now this, uh, this Baal section, whenever something outside the cycle is included, it's there for an important reason. And here the reason is that God is going to deal with Israel's idolatry before he leads them into war. See, the real problem isn't that they need to be delivered from Midian. Their problem isn't with Midian. Their problem is with God because they are forgetting about God. They are failing to serve God. They have been given all of these blessings, all of this uh, magnificent calling from God to be a people that reflect his glory to the nations, living under his standards of justice and righteousness and mercy uh, live and love, living under his standards. Uh, they are to reflect him, but they're not doing that. They're chasing idols instead. And so he's going to deal with the idolatry, and he's going to start at Gideon's house. Because Gideon's dad has a shrine to Baal and an Asherah pole next to it. That Baal and Asherah were male and female uh, gods of fertility. Uh, he, uh, Baal's also the god of storm, god of uh, rain. 
And so uh, they, he, he is going to deal with that because you can't go out in battle for Yahweh declaring the victory of Yahweh when you've got a Baal shrine at your house. That's just, that, it's not just that that's not a good look, it's that, that, that that's wrong, that that is failing to serve God and him alone. So, so Gideon is told to tear it down. Tear it down because you can't have Yahweh's deliverance with a shrine back home. Uh, what's interesting about this is throughout the book, the problem with Israel has been idolatry, and yet this is the first time it's really dealt with. I mean, they're really dealing with it. And he's going to do something courageous. So Gideon, his name means, I read this this week and I was confused. This is how dumb I am. It said, Gideon means, quote, hacker. And I go, wow, they didn't even have computers. How, how did, I don't get it. And that's, oh, oh, hack, like hack. It means chopper. His name means chop or hack. That's what his name literally means. So he's now going to fulfill his calling by hacking down a Baal statue, uh, the altar to Baal rather, and then take this pole like a totem pole to Asherah and chop it up and use it for firewood to build an altar and sacrifice a bull to Yahweh their God. Well, the next morning, the town's people wake up and the men of the town, they are mad. They have never seen anything this terrible in Israel. Who in the world told that tore down the, the Lord Baal altar? Who would come in here and destroy our precious Asherah wooden idol? Who would do that? And they ask around, they find out it's Joash's son, and they said, get your rebellious, your sacrilegious son in here to die, for he has torn down Baal and Asherah. These are the people of Israel. This is how bad things are. You thought getting the food stolen by the Midianites annually was bad. This is how bad it is. They're ready to kill a guy for tearing down an altar to a false god. They should be celebrating him. They should be promoting him. There should be a parade through town for Gideon who is delivering them from the darkness of false gods, and yet they want to kill him. Well, his dad wakes up. His dad, who owns the altar, wakes up, and he basically says to him, hey, are you guys fighting for Baal? Are you serious? If Baal's a god, let him take care of his own business. If Baal's a god, let him strike down my son. Whatever. If he's a god, if he's not, then let's, let's worship Yahweh, our God. And so they then start calling Chopper, Hacker Man. They start calling him, let Baal contend against him. So he's got these two great names, Jeroboam and uh, Gideon, he's got these two names, Chopper for chopping down the idol, and then Jeroboam, let Baal take him down if he can. You know, he's got these awesome names at this point. So Gideon models something powerful here, and that is you can't engage Yahweh's battle and serve Baal. If Yahweh is your rescuer, then Baal's got to go. Yahweh can't be your family God, your historical God, your childhood God, your national cultural God, and Baal be your functional God. And that's exactly what's happened. I mean, Gideon knows. They're passing it down the news to the next generation. He said, our fathers have told us that Yahweh delivered us from Egypt 
We know all about that. It's just he's abandoned us now. And so we've got to look for help elsewhere. And so we're going to trust in the gods of our surroundings, Baal and Asherah. Gideon knows, but he doesn't think God is present and helping him enough, so he has to trust something, someone, some power else. This, is, this hits home because we all know this experience, not totem poles, but other kinds of idols, other places that we trust. Jesus said it this way, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money, he says in Matthew. What's he saying? You can't serve Yahweh and then say, but when things aren't going well and we don't know what's happening in our life, we're going to go put our security somewhere else. Jesus says, in the case of money is idolatry, you can't serve God and say, I trust him for everything, starting with my salvation and everything else down, and yet put your hope in money, your security in money. I trust God, but to feel comfortable, I've got to have this much. To allay my fears, I've got to have this much. To have some good feeling about myself, I need to have this kind of wealth. To, to, to manage my reputation, to be thought well of others, I need to own these stuff and things, these kinds of things, that to find my identity, I need money. To, to, to fulfill my purpose, I need to make money. That's my purpose. So you can't say I worship the Lord and then live by a philosophy, live by a mindset, live by a heart motivation that trusts, uh, that, that, that trusts money above God. So Jesus' example is very real to us, but it's the exact same thing that's going on here. Like Gideon, we're called to take our hatchet Take our axe and all be choppers of the idols that we look to for security because we all do this. We, we all have a, a secret sin that we run to for comfort when we're stressed. It's easy to buy into a philosophy or a mindset that gives me meaning. I am what I own. I am what I achieve. I have value because people like me or respect me. Those kinds of ideas are idols, making the respect of others above the respect or the love of God. My purpose in life is this relationship. My ultimate purpose in life is my kids. Well, we should take seriously our parenting, but your ultimate purpose in life is not your kids. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. My ultimate purpose in life is this person or, or that person. Or, or we do it this way. You know, I can have joy. I, I can have joy in my life as long as I have my health. As long as I have my job. As long as I have my retirement account. As long as I have those people in office making our country the way I think it should be. Then I'm okay and can have joy. Those are idols of our, of our body, of our provision, of our politics. The hacker goes to work, and, and we're called to go to work and be hackers as well, by God's grace. Well, the word must get out on this guy, 
because, well, we know messengers go out. Because what happens is after he does this heroic work, he then calls everybody together and they all respond. He sends messengers out and everybody gathers to him. And so you have Midian down in the valley of Jezreel, which is like the uh, most, it's like the fruit basket, I don't know, the central California of Palestine. It's where uh, so much is, is grown. So they're there ready to get their annual pillage. And he's got all the people coming to him, having just chopped down Baal and saying, let's go. And this is great. It's about to happen. But Gideon needs some more assurance. Uh, Chopping down the idol and that all going well, that that wasn't enough. Uh, God speaking directly to him. Uh, that, that wasn't enough. Uh, the offering that is burned and consumed in the disappearing angel of the Lord, that was amazing, but that wasn't enough. He, he needs assurance. And so this is what he asked for in verse 36, and we'll wrap up here. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and if it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground, on all ground there was dew. We'll get to the battle next week, what actually happens afterwards. Well, this is the famous fleece scenario. This is the stuff of... Uh, classes and seminars on finding God's will. Uh, this has quite a background of, of, it's viewed as a way to determine God's will in pop evangelical Christianity. Uh, but this isn't anything about discerning God's will. The fleece is not about, should I take this job or not? I remember when I was in high school, a kid, guy in my youth group told me, I'm putting out a fleece to find out if I should date this girl. I'm going to call her. That's what we used to do. You didn't text for a date. You called. But uh, I'm going to call her, and if she answers by the third ring, it's God's will that I date her. I'm thinking, well, if her dad answers, don't ask him out. That's not God's will. You know, I'm thinking, what, what, what do you, what, this is crazy. L- let me give you another way to think about God's will. If you're going to make a decision about re- <laughs> entering into a dating relationship based on the number of rings on a phone call, you're not ready to date anybody, okay? Can we just say, <laughs> that's how we might know God's will. You, my friend, lack wisdom. But uh, I, at the time, I thought it was really cool, so I lacked wisdom as well. Um, this isn't about guidance. God has already toned him. What God hasn't said, this isn't a question, do I take this job or that job? Do I date this girl or that girl? That, God's told him what to do. God says, go out and I will lead you. I am with you. I'm demonstrating my presence and my power. I've given you my word. There's no question of what Gideon's supposed to do. This isn't about should I or shouldn't I. This isn't door number one, door number two, door number three of God's will. This is Gideon needing assurance. I mean, even Gideon himself says, verse 36, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, I've already got your word, God. I already know what I'm supposed to be doing. I know tomorrow morning we're supposed to be going to battle, but I could use a little bit more encouragement. Gideon gets more assurance than anybody in Judges. God himself talks to him face to face. 
He's got the sacrifice. He's got the support after the Baal thing. And now he gets not one, but two fleece incidents. It's easy to be hard on Gideon. But think about his life, man. For seven years on an annual basis, everybody has to run up and live in a cave without food. Because this nation has more people and more camels, which was a sign of wealth, more camels and more people than anybody. And so maybe we give him a little bit of a break that he needs another confirmation. I mean, we're all weak, aren't we? It's easy for me to look at that and say, man, I obey, I obey God's word all the time. And I would never be afraid to obey anything in the book. Right, right. No, we, we all can battle fear and need another confirmation. Isn't God's word enough? Yes, but we're not perfect. And, and the, the, the thing about the fleece, we get hung up on God's will, or I'm, I started leading us down the trail of Gideon's fear. But I think what the, the fleece incident really represents to us is the mercy of God, that God would be so condescending to, to him, condescending in a good way, that he would come down to his level and that seeing a fearful servant who's unsure and asking for assurance, that God would patiently do the fleece thing for him. And then he would, uh, you know, sec- the second day do really what was even more miraculous. You would expect the lamb's wool fleece to, to draw in the water if it's sitting on grass, you know, uh, sitting, it would draw it in. So the fact it's wet the first day, but the second day is really a miraculous act that... Uh, that the fleece, uh, that all around it would be uh, dry and that only on the ground would there be dew. This strengthens his faith. It's one of those events in Scripture that's not recommended. It's not given as a prescription for what we're supposed to do. It's just reported to us. But it sure is a beautiful picture of God patient with our weaknesses. The fleece isn't about guidance. It's about God's mercy to a fearful servant. And you know what? Some of us need that today. You don't need an answer for door number one, door number two, door number three. That's not really your greatest need. What you need today is you need God to meet you at the place of your fears. What is God calling you to do? What does God's word direct you to do? You know what it is that you're hesitant, that you're fearful about. What's the conversation you need to have to honor the Lord and serve someone else that you're avoiding? Who's the person you need to communicate to Jesus about that you are fearful? Where's the place you need to tell the truth we haven't been? Where's the place you need to make a confession of sin to someone? There's no, there's no question. We, 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 we know we're supposed to do it. And maybe we'd want to put out a fleece and say, God, promise me this is going to go well. You know, if this happens, I'll know it's going to go well. If this happens, it's not going to go well. we got to do it. It doesn't matter how it goes. We need to trust the Lord. And in that case, this is the picture we get, that God is merciful to us in our weakness and that he will give us strength to do what we're called to do. God is with you. That's the hope. God's word strengthens you and God is with you. His spirit is inside of you if you're a Christian. He has given you all that you need for life and for godliness. And ultimately, where we look for strength to do what God's called us to do is not a fleece trick like this. We don't look to Dewey 
lamb's wool on the ground. We look to a different lamb. If we really want confidence that God is with us and will give us power to do what he's called us to do, we look to the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. Gideon is imperfect, and yet God uses him to deliver his people. But we have a perfect deliverer in Jesus Christ. Commentator George Schwab says it this way. This is helpful. He says, if Gideon, with all his flaws and timidity, his weak faith and proclivity to stray, which we'll see as the story goes on, can accomplish God's mission when empowered by the Spirit, what could a genuinely covenant-keeping man, one in whom no waywardness of sin accomplish? The imagination boggles. Such a man could do anything, anything at all, even save the whole world. Judges cries out for this sort of anointed leader. Gideon anticipates the Messiah. We have a perfect fearless Savior that looked suffering, indescribable suffering, squarely in the eye and prayed, not my will, but yours be done. That's our Savior. That's our Savior. Our faith may be fickle, but Christ's faith was perfect. Our hearts may choose idolatry. We may run to idolatry, but our Savior was condemned for our idolatry, paid the price for our idolatry, was treated like an idolater himself, even though he was perfect because of our idolatry. That's God's mercy to us in our sins. We may feel abandoned. That's what Gideon says. God's not even with us. We may feel abandoned, but our Savior, our greater rescuer, on the cross cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never experience isolation from God. He was separated that we might not ever be. He was abandoned that we might never be alone. We turn to Christ for strength, for power, to fulfill what he's calling us to do in his word. He graciously may give us assuring signs along the way, a comforting word, uh, strength, someone who goes with us. Uh, uh, you know, he may give us signs along the way, an open door that screams, now's the moment to have the conversation. He may give us those kind of assuring signs, but the greatest assurance is a risen Savior who has poured out his Spirit upon us that we are empowered to do what he has called us to do. There is mercy for the fearful heart, and that mercy is in the King of mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's... Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.